This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 263, and we're recording on January 5th, 2021. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Again, it's 2021. I feel like what? I just need to keep saying that. <laughs> Amazing. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yesterday was our first day back at work after a long break, and I'm still a little, I don't know, confused about where I am and what day it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. Super fun. We have a lot of feedback, so I'm just going to roll into our show, how the show works. As I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need, you know, a reading recommendation that's personalized, we can do that for you. You can send us your requests via email at getbooktobookwrite.com or drop them in the form, uh, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in big, bold letters in the first line if you're using the form. If you email us, just put it in the subject line so we will get to it on time. We might email you back if we've already answered your show on the air or if we haven't uh, or if we aren't going to get to it in time. And I think that's it. It's been a few weeks since we've done this, so I want to make sure I'm not forgetting anything. Um, okay, feedback. So let's see. Rebecca says, an additional recommendation for Kristen, who is looking for indigenous reads. I recommend Medicine Walk by Richard Wagamese. This book is beautiful and gritty. He interweaves indigenous culture and spirituality with the effects of colonization in a contemporary setting. Um, Wendy, feedback for Ocean, who's looking for someone who strings words together as well as Cormac McCarthy. Wendy recommends Anne Patchett. Her phrasing continuously astounds me. Start with Bel Canto and go from there. And this one, I, I I wrote down, I didn't write the name down, oops, so I don't know who uh, sent us this feedback, I'm sorry about that, but somebody has feedback for Rebecca, who was looking for Donna Tart readalikes, The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos by Dominic Smith, a poor grad student in 1950s New York, creates a forgery of a 1630s Dutch woman's landscape. 50 years later, the student is an established academic curating an exhibit, and both the original and her forgery show up, ooh, shenanigans, winner of some Australian book awards been nominated for a Carnegie Medal and Walter Scott Prize. Okay, cool. And then finally, Gina um, says, for the listener who wanted non-Adichie African fiction, I just finished His Only Wife by Peace Adzomedie, which is about Afi, a young Ghanaian woman who accepts a marriage proposal to get out of poverty. Unfortunately, her new in-laws set this marriage up because they see her as an easily manipulable pawn who can get the groom away from a woman they don't like. Um, I don't want to give away the ending, but Afi comes to understand her own worth, and it's so satisfying. That does sound very satisfying. All right, Jen's going to read us our first question, and away we will go. All right. Our first question is from Emily, who says, I just started watching Tiny Pretty Things on Netflix, and I'm very intrigued by the culture of ballet, both its beauty and ugliness, e.g. the need for a specific body type, the cutthroat environment, etc. I'd love to read a novel that dives into this concept specifically about what it is like to be an elite ballerina. I'm not interested in a dry informational read, but one where I can learn about the world and the lifestyle of ballet through fiction. Okay, before we talk about ballet books, let us hear from a sponsor. 
All right. So ballet books for Emily, who started watching Tiny Pretty Things on Netflix. I also watched some of Tiny Pretty Things on Netflix. Good stuff. And I... Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. I am so excited because it, at least from the phrasing of this question, it appears that you don't know that they're based on books (laughs) that you should read. They're so good. The first book and the whole series is also called Tiny Pretty Things, and they're by Sona Karepatra and Danielle Clayton. And it is, I think there are differences uh, in the show and the book inevitably. And it's been a while since I read this first book, so I couldn't tell you exactly what they are, but you absolutely need to read them. They are extremely, I mean, the publisher pitched it as Black Swan meets Pretty Little Liars, and that is extremely Mm. correct. Like, that is 100% correct. The characters are amazing. Um, I think that... You know, the the scandal and then the really like intense details of what it's like to be training at this kind of elite ballet academy are just so, you know, just like they sucks you in. It's extremely compelling. And yeah, and the and it's a whole series. So uh, I would definitely recommend there are two books. Uh, Shiny Broken Pieces is the second one. And yeah, I like you should read the books. So again, that's Tiny Pretty Things, the book by Sona Karepatra and Danielle Clayton. All right. I picked Astonish Me by Maggie Shipstead. And this is very loosely kind of inspired by the 1970s defection of Mikhail Baryshnikov, who was a pretty famous baller 
Ballerina? Ballet dancer? Is it ballerina if it's a dude? I don't know. I just realized I don't know. Anyway, Is it ballerino? It's not. I'm just it's saying, not I just couldn't resist. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. It's not a thing. It's, it's definitely not. I'm just going to call him a ballerina. That's what you get, Mikhail. Uh, he doesn't care. So this is about a woman. Uh, her name is Joan. And she is a gifted ballerina, but only so gifted that like she can tell she's good but she's never going to be great like that level of like competent you know um and she gets involved with a dancer a russian dancer named arslan ruskov who defects from the soviet union to the u.s and like she drives his getaway car right like she is there for this man they have a whirlwind romance but he is beyond gifted like he's an extremely talented ballet dancer or ballerino as it were (laughs) and (laughs) and he becomes immediately like super famous in the u.s very pursued he leaves joan and takes up with a prima ballerina who joan is like respect like i get it like she's so much better than me fine obviously the two of you are going to go occupy rarefied air joan meanwhile marries a very nice boy who's like a PhD student who really, really loves her. They move to the West Coast, have a kid, and she tries to kind of move on with her life, right? She starts teaching dance, and it's just a very, like, hashtag middle class. And then her her son turns out to be a prodigy, like a super, super talented dancer. And as he grows older and goes off into the world of ballet, he encounters Arslan and ha- has to, like, be in his world. And so Joan has to, um, you know, re-encounter and relive that experience and open up those kinds of wounds. So it's very much about like intrigue and scandal, but also ballet from the perspective of somebody who is never going to be super, super famous, but still does all of that like really punishing stuff that they do to their bodies um, and like desperately wants to be good enough, but knows that she never will be. So it's kind of an outsider perspective, which most of us are because most of us are never going to be ballerinos, right? Like it's just not going to happen. So I liked this book because you get that and you get that look at like the culture of ballet, the desperation that often comes with the lives of uh, really talented dancers. But also Joan is kind of a normal and like has kind of a normal life. And that tension between having a normal life and appreciating it and realizing that you're never going to have the thing that you want is really what drives the book. So that's Astonish Me by Maggie Shipstead. Alrighty, question two is from Sophia, who says, I recently watched Mank, and though I didn't like it, it put me in the mood for a glossy and gossipy book about the Hollywood studio system. I haven't read anything in this realm with the exception of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, so I'm pretty open to anything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but would prefer it if it didn't focus on white men. All right, Jen, what you got? Basically anything by Carrie Fisher. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Still white, but not really focused on men necessarily, although she does dish a lot about her various relationships. But yeah, so Carrie Fisher, obviously, you know who Carrie Fisher is, right? Amazing actress, Mm -hmm. Princess Leia in Star Wars, among many other things. Daughter of Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. And so she like grew up in Hollywood and then starred in, you know, a surprise blockbuster at a very tender age. And it deeply shaped her life. If you are feeling more memoir-y, I think The Princess Diarist is a good place to start because that gets very into her Star Wars years in particular. And it's it's both very funny and very sad because, you know, that environment is really rough on everybody, but especially younger women. And she's very frank about the intense impact that it had on her mental health, her emotional health, um, how she saw herself, her relationships. 
But if you want more of a novel, she wrote Postcards from the Edge, which is very much based on her own experience as well, but is more like plotty rather than here are some vignettes from my time in Hollywood. So you have some choices. But really, she's she was such an amazing writer as well as an amazing actress and like so dishy and gossipy without ever losing sight of the real issues at the heart of what makes the Hollywood system, you know, what can make it so damaging for the people caught up in it. So again, that's me recommending Carrie Fisher. (laughs) Okay, I picked June by Miranda Beverly Whittemore, which is a novel about a 25 year old woman named Cassie who's from Ohio. And she's an orphan who was raised by her grandmother. Her parents died when she was eight. And she's raised by her grandmother in this like crumbling mansion in rural Ohio. It's very weird. And when the book opens, her grandmother has just died and left her this house and like very little money. So Cassie moves into the house and is kind of trying to figure out what to do with herself uh, and has like a minor breakdown in the process. Like she bills come unpaid. She refuses to answer the phone. She's not answering the door. She's just doing this like swanning gothic life in this crumbling Ohio mansion trying to figure out like what she's going to do with it because it's falling apart. And then one day she gets a knock at the door that won't leave. So she finally answers it. Um, And it turns out that, you know, there's a man from Hollywood on her doorstep telling her that super, super, super famous actor Jack Montgomery, who has just died, has left her, Cassie, $37 million and a private island. And Cassie's like, no, no, that's not who? No, that doesn't make any sense. Turns out uh, Jack Montgomery and her grandmother, June, might have known each other in biblical ways or maybe not some hack some kind of way you don't know that's what the whole book is there to find out however a wrinkle here you know of course Cassie's like well i'll take the money that's fine but the wrinkle is that jack montgomery has daughters who are rec- who were like recognized as his children throughout his life and are famous actresses in their own right and they like descend upon cassie's house demanding that she take a dna test to prove that she's at all related to jack montgomery and if not they're gonna fight le- in court to get that money away from her Cassie refuses to take the DNA test until they come to her, like, come and stay in her house uh, and help her figure out how Jack and her grandmother knew each other and if she is, you know, actually related to him uh, and how that could possibly be. So it's very, very gossipy. And you're going back and forth between June and Jack's meeting uh, in Ohio when he came to Ohio to film a movie and how all of that turned out. And then the present with these, like, super wealthy you very used to luxury in my brain they're all they're all Gwyneth Paltrow which is to see if Gwyneth Paltrow's <laughs> show up at Cassie's house in this like awful dirty old house like and with their assistants like trying not to touch anything and you know um and it's just ah it's hilarious and goofy and like very rich people problem because of for Cassie uh who becomes rich people problems but it's it's great so uh, very uh, seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo so that's June by Miranda Beverly Whittemore that's a very vivid <laughs> image in my head now. <laughs> Just a million Gwyneths. <laughs> oh, Lord, that sounds awful. Uh, <laughs> okay. Our next question is from Anonymous, who says, I'm looking for a book to gift to my friend for her birthday. Some fiction books I've recommended and she has liked in the past are The Goldfinch, The Signature of All Things, and Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. She also told me she liked Where the Crawdad Sings and she loves pretty much everything Wally Lamb has ever written and John green she's told me before she likes long meandering books with no plot i've also definitely noticed she likes what i can only describe as books about angsty protagonists da, 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 da. she occasionally dips into horror uh, as for nonfiction books she likes what she calls effed up childhood memoirs mm. i'm a bit wary of picking up memoirs because i can't be sure if she's read them or not 
planning on giving her a parable of the sower for Christmas. I have no idea if it will be a success or not. Wanted to be as thorough as I could be. Okay, this was very thorough, Anonymous. You were mm-hmm. extremely thorough. Uh, I'm just going to keep talking. I, I know you said that you're wary of giving her memoirs because you cannot be sure if she's already read them. But I am recommending you a memoir, and I feel extremely sure that she hasn't read it because I don't think that many people read this book, and it's so good, and I think it's exactly up... Uh, your friend's alley. It's The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Co. And this is an extremely beautifully written and very angsty memoir about a young woman who is Korean-American and her parents uh, have been living in America for over a decade Um And she and her brother are like in California. They're, you know, they're pretty much settled. And then her father gets a job offer that would take him and her mother back to Korea. But they can't all go. Like, it just doesn't make sense for them all to go. So they go and leave their teenage daughter behind with the older brother in California because it is theoretically going to be less disruptive. But this, like, really scars the author. She really just cannot imagine or forgive her mother like for going and why you would go. And um, she really struggles with this, with this distance from her mother. And her mother, in the meantime, is writing her letters in Korean, trying to like connect. And it's just it doesn't really work. So uh, like years later, you know, the author comes across these letters hidden in a box and she starts to translate them and starts to try to understand more about her mother, her mother's own, you know, history. There's a lot of generational trauma that is uncovered and tries to examine her response to her parents, you know, leaving her during these formative years and what it must have been like for her mother. And it's just... So well done. It's really frank. It's very it's very rough in some parts. Um, I'll give some trigger warnings in a minute. But it's also it's just really thoughtful about how what seems to us unforgivable it is maybe maybe we never can quite forgive it, but we can come to understand it better. Um, and that process is a really difficult process. Uh, and it's very unflinching in how it looks at that. So, yeah, I just I thought this was amazing. Uh, the trigger warnings for this book include self-harm, suicide, sexual assault and disordered eating. And again, that's The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Co. OK, I kind of latched on to how you said she likes angsty YA and also horror, but hasn't read any Stephen King. So I mushed those together <laughs> and I came up with uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, which is so creepy. Um, the narrator is an 18-year-old girl named uh, Mary Catherine. She goes by Mary Cat. She lives with her sister and I think it was like a, a great uncle um, in a, another crumbling, yet another crumbling mansion <laughs> um, in outside of like a small village. And she goes into the village occasionally, like once a week to get groceries. Her sister is agoraphobic and her uncle is very ill. So Maricat's the only one who can do it. And when she goes into the village, you're you're kind of dropped in media race when the book opens. So you don't really have any backstory here. You're just like with her as she's going in. And the villagers treat her very strangely. Like they, they avoid her. They don't want to come anywhere near her. Some of them like you can it just feels very tense and you can feel like they want to throw stuff like it's just weird and then as the book progresses you realize that um her entire family is dead and they all died of uh, arsenic poisoning one night uh, a few years two years i think before the book opens 
And they suspect that Constance, who is Mary Cat's sister, was the poisoner uh, because she was the one who cooked dinner. And Mary Cat was sent to her room without dinner the night everybody died. Um, so she's kind of absolved. Uh, and the uncle survived, but like his mind didn't entirely survive. So you've got this, not literally, but like haunted old house with these three people kind of clawing at the walls and the villagers not happy that they're, that they're still there. And then out of nowhere comes, I think it's like a cousin, a distant relative comes to the house saying that he like wants to check on them and he cares about them and wants to make sure that they're getting along. Um, obviously, he's just there to like marry one of them so he can get the house and whatever money is like left in it. And so Maricat, who is like quite content actually with the way that her life is arranged, um, she's in complete control of it. Like she gets to do mostly what she wants, uh, starts to think about ways to like kind of get rid of him and make sure that he doesn't woo her sister. Um, and all the while you're like stuck with one of these people did this, you know, like one of these three, it's this 18 year old girl, it's Constance who everyone suspects or it's the uncle. Like, you know that one of these people is a family obliterator right and but it seems so normal like their lives are so weirdly normal like you're just there watching them eat breakfast the day-to-day of of having come out on the other side of something like that and what that is like it's so it's horrifying and Miracat is you know again she's 18 so there's a lot of angst there and not all of it is related to the fact that her entire family is dead some of it's related to the fact like you know, she's never going to go into the village and meet a cute boy. That's never going to happen because she might be a murderer. You know, like you don't know. Um, so it's just super weird. Very creepy. Um, you said she likes the glass castle and educated and like effed up childhood memoirs. And I think that this will scratch that itch, even though it's not a memoir. Uh, but it is uh, first person POV. So it, it feels like it is. It's just super weird. And I think she would like it. So that's We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Um, our next question is from M, who is a public librarian and has two requests. The first one is, I'm hoping to find a book that speaks to my experience as a woman in her 20s struggling to establish a rewarding career, find a life partner, and stay afloat financially. I often find the writing style of romance or genre fiction cheesy, but I also roll my eyes at litfic that takes itself too seriously. Uh, I like straightforward writing and authentic dialogue. I'm a millennial, but books that feature hip, tech-savvy millennials with personal brands turn me off. Um, And then there's more about some books she likes and some she doesn't. And then the second request is, I'm hoping you can recommend a career advice book that is useful for the average Jane. The career books that I've read thus far seem to be written by and aimed at women in the corporate world who are already quite successful and prestigious, at least by my standards. As a small-town librarian, I don't find these high-powered women relatable because it seems like they live in a different world. That being said, I still want to learn how to grow my career and create opportunities for myself. Okay, Jen, what you got? We split this up. So Jen has taken the career advice book and I've taken the first one. Yeah, and it seems like kind of a sideways recommendation, but for career advice for like the average human, which I feel you on (laughs) how Mm -hmm. potentially unrelatable a lot of those other books are, um, I'm recommending Ask a Manager by Alison Green. Alison Green has been writing and workplace advice column on the internet for like over a decade that is so useful and Mm -hmm. so relevant, like regularly still weekly, I will see somebody sharing something that I'm like, oh, that's really good. And there's a book, thankfully, um, which is super helpful because I think especially you talk about like being in, you know, a small town and in a library and you want to like grow your career and create opportunities for yourself and, you know, not a Fortune 500 company. I think so many of the things that we struggle with are that at least 
in my experience, we're not often taught, first of all, how to advocate for ourselves in the workplace. And second of all, like how to deal with coworkers, managers, the, the power structure, um, and how to navigate those things. And because of the way that Ask a Manager is set up, you know, it's so often um, based on these questions that Alison Green has answered over the course of her career as an online columnist, that she is able to like, even though they're very specific to the person writing in, they are somewhat universal in that like so many of us have struggled with something similar. So I think there's really good advice in both this book and the online columns about how to navigate workplaces in all kinds of different ways, whether it's like trying to get a raise or like dealing with, you know, being micromanaged and advocating for yourself at all. Or maybe like you're not getting any management support Mm. or somebody's lying about something like there's so many or like, you know, your cube mates music is too loud. Like there's from the very small to the very big, like all of these things are covered. And it is so useful to have concrete examples of things where you can be like, oh, so that's one way that I could handle this. Like, that's a thing that I found extremely useful in my professional life. And I think that others and you in particular will find it useful as well. So again, that's Ask a Manager by Allison Green, both the book and the online column. I read that every day. Yeah. So (laughs) So good. Yeah. Um, Okay, so for books that speak to your experience as a woman in her 20s struggling to establish a career, I I feel like you named books that you liked, uh, you named novels, so I feel like you were looking for for, for fiction, but I went with a work of nonfiction because I think it will really hit a lot of the points that you're looking for, and that's Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by Anne Helen Peterson, which we actually just read for work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like a group read at work. And it's based on a BuzzFeed article that Anne Helen Peterson wrote many years ago. Not many. Well, you know, like four years ago that she's turned into this book. And the reason why I picked it is because, you know, so many books about millennials are about exactly what you're talking about. Like the hip tech savvy person who lives in New York and like is burned out because they work at Tumblr and for 80 hours a week and like don't have health care, but they do get branded tennis shoes or whatever, you know, that thing that is just so typical when we talk about the experience of millennials in the workplace. But Peterson is really talking about everyone in this generation. Like she talks about people in the service industry. She talks about people hustling in the gig economy a lot, actually, and about people who have what I would, you know, like, quote unquote, normal jobs, like teachers and postal workers and librarians, and how kind of late stage capitalism is taking what used to be jobs that you could support a family on and making them smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, cutting away benefits, cutting away pay, cutting the the job away entirely and contracting it out to freelancers in order to reduce expenses for a company's bottom line so that they can pay out stockholders, which isn't necessarily the case for a public librarian, but it's not to pay out stockholders. They're reducing those things to so that they can cut a city budget, right? Or a county budget or whatever. I think that this was a big paradigm shifting book for me, I think, because it's nothing that I didn't know, you know, like, I know it's hard to find a good job for people our age. I know that a lot of people who I know still don't have health care because they're working a bunch of different gigs that they've kind of shuffled together to make one job. And that advancing in a career is hard to do when you can't even find one, right? Or like an established Mm. one. None of that's like new information, but having it spelled out in a way that was like parallel to the labor movement and how that has been kind of uh, regulated almost out of existence, really, 
was super, super helpful to me because it's hard to internalize. You know, I do not believe that millennials are all lazy. We all hustle more than any generation ever, like literally by the hours more. But it is difficult to not internalize some of that a little bit when it's all that you ever hear. But I think reading that this book makes, I don't know, it just made me feel better. You know, like it's not us, right? (laughs) It's not us. It's, it's, the systemic situation that we found ourselves in. So you are a woman in your 20s struggling to establish a rewarding career. And a lot of it has to do with these systemic issues um, that she talks about in the book. So that's Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by Anne Helen Peterson. And now it's time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question is from Allie, who says, I'm looking for a book where the main character comes up with and completes some personal project. In these pandemic times, I've decided to embark on my own personal project of interviewing different members of my family about their lives and compiling it all. I need some motivation slash inspiration, ideally in audiobook format. One such book that I loved is the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, something that has a feeling of accomplishment and a feel-good plot. So, (laughs) I kind of struggled with this question a little bit. Mostly because I, I, like, I always struggle when it's like, feel good, that also has this other element. I'm like, I've read like five feel good books in my entire life, apparently. Yes, um, <laughs> it's a, I don't know why all of my books or choices are so depressing. 
And also, I was struggled finding one that wasn't YA. Like, there's a lot of YA about personal projects, but not so many about uh, adult fiction. So I'm curious to hear the feedback on this one. I do want to give a quick shout out to The Switch by Beth O'Leary, which includes, uh, is extremely feel good and includes uh, a local, like, you know, festival, basically, as a personal project, which is super fun um, and inspiring. And I think you'll dig it. But I'm also recommending The Noble Hustle by Colson Whitehead, which is a hilarious book about it's a, it's like a little mini memoir about Whitehead learning to play poker so that he can go to the World Series of Poker and write about it for Grantland. And <laughs> it is, like I said, it is so funny. I mean, Colson Whitehead I think is really well known for like the Underground Railroad, for example, which is not a funny book. But some of his earlier work in particular and this one, like he has a wicked sense of humor and hearing his sort of very self-deprecating take on like why he's not good at poker, but he's going to like take the bus to Atlantic City from New York and like smell his, you know, seatmates tuna fish sandwich for three hours and then like go sit in a chair for 12 hours while people bring him free cocktails and he completely fails to be good at poker is so entertaining. And it's also extremely thoughtful because, of course, he is an extremely smart person. And so he like manages to tie it into the human condition in these very <laughs> unexpected ways. But yeah, I I picked this mostly because I was trying to think about like a finite project that also in a book that made me laugh. And this is what I came up with. So it might not exactly be your cup of tea, but I want to recommend it anyway, because it really is good. And I think we could all use a laugh right now, especially one that considers also the human condition. So again, that is The Noble Hustle by Colson Whitehead. I picked Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune by Roselle Lim. Um, And I picked this because it has a personal project of a woman trying to open a restaurant or rather reopen her grandmother's restaurant, which has been been closed for several years. Um, But it also has like a magical realism project that's really great. So Natalie Tan uh, has been traveling the world as a chef. And she left home. She hasn't been home in over seven years because her mother did not support her career choices. She grew up in an apartment with her mother that was above her grandmother's restaurant. But her after her grandmother died, her mother didn't want to run it. Her mother was agoraphobic. And so she didn't even want to leave the house. And so when Natalie expressed interest in becoming a chef and reopening the restaurant, her mother refused to let her for reasons that you know the book gets into. And so Natalie runs off. She never comes home. And then when the book opens, her mother has died. And she is coming back to her neighborhood, which is in Chinatown in San Francisco to take care of, you know, her mother's effects. And when she gets there, she discovers that her mom has left her the restaurant. And in order to open it, she goes to see a neighborhood fortune teller who tells her that she has to use some of her grandmother's recipes to help three people. I think it's three. It might be five. I think it's three. Uh, Three people in the neighborhood who are struggling. She has to help them with the food. And when that happens, then the restaurant opening the restaurant will become accessible to her because she's got all these obstacles. You know, there's like taxes and dealing with the city and blah, blah, blah. And so she sets out to do this. There are recipes in the book which are amazing. And the magical part is like, if you've read, it's got a, a flavor of that. Uh, if you've read like Water for Chocolate, where like the feelings go into the food and then influence the person who eats them. Uh, it's it's very similar to that, where like she puts her her emotions and desires for the person that she's helping 
I'm in quotes, helping into this meal that she's making them. And like, she tries to repair a marriage that's falling apart. She tries to help an old man who's about to lose his bookstore. And all of this is set against the backdrop of Chinatown being really aggressively gentrified. Like the villain in the novel is this like very perky white real estate agent lady who keeps coming around to everybody's property and trying to get them to sell it so that she can flip it and sell it to like super wealthy San Francisco tech companies. And Natalie just like refuses to let that happen and wants to help her neighbors keep their businesses and kind of revitalize the street to bring in more more uh, foot traffic. So there's a lot of projects happening here, right? Like she wants to do the she has to complete the recipe project and help some of her neighbors. She wants to revitalize her neighborhood. She wants to reopen her restaurant. There's also a little a little uh, little romance, cute little boy who comes around who she's like very into. And it is very feel good. Like everything is just nice. You know, <laughs> it's like one of those books where like. Everything is nice. It's not that the problems aren't real. The problems are very real, but they're just handled so nicely. <laughs> like all the characters are nice, except for that real estate agent. She can get bent, but everybody else is great. <laughs> so that's Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune by Roselle Lim. Okay, I think it is my turn. Um, our next question is from Mateo, who says, I've recently finished two series, The Fallen Blade by Kelly McCullough and The Chaos Queen Quintet, which is very hard to say, let me just tell you, yeah. uh, by Christopher Husberg. What I like about these series is the world building and the characters. I didn't quite like the religions described in the books, but they add a nice touch to enrich the worlds in which the series are set in. Do you have any recommendations as to what to read next? I'd like to stay in the fantasy genre because I've been reading too much sci-fi lately. Okay, Jen, what you got? I am recommending The Dreamblood Duology by N.K. Jemisin. I know I talked about The Killing Moon uh, last year. Last year? Last year! <laughs> <laughs> so I can do this because it was last year. Um, yep. No, okay, but I just reread this this two book series and it's so good. And when I was thinking about, you know, you talk about like world building and great characters and even religions that enrich the storyline, this it just fits the bill so perfectly. Um, it takes place in a fantasy setting that is inspired in particular by ancient Egypt, uh, but it is like not meant to be ancient Egypt is separate fantasy world. And there is this whole elaborate system of magic that is part of their religion. And it is very heavily based on dreams. And the magic users have powers based on uh, dreams and using like, you know, good dreams, bad dreams, even like sexy dreams uh, to heal others, but they can also harm. And there's a lot of politics. Um, there are, you know, schemes and ambassadors from other places and, you know, who's betraying who and what monster is on the loose kind of thing. And the characters really shine. And it's very interesting to see them navigate these various tensions, but in the most human ways, because they are all like 100% concerned with the people that they care about. So it's very, like, very focused on those character relationships at the same time that you're getting this incredibly rich world that they're moving around in. And I just think that, like, yeah, if you're looking for that kind of pre-industrial fantasy, this is such a good series to read. Um, it does get kind of dark. I will give some trigger warnings. There is violence and abuse towards women and children and as well as sexual assault. But it's it's so oh, it's so good, y'all. It's so good. Uh, so, again, that's the Dreamblood Duology by N.K. Jemison. All right. I also kind of fixated on that's not not quite that intensely noticed that you talked yeah. about the religions in your books uh, that you would have enjoyed and so i picked the kashiel series by jacqueline carey the first book is called kashiel's dart uh, because it has a very interesting like religious cosmology almost um it's it's a 
kind of classic epic fantasy um, novel, except in this universe, angels have descended from on high into this land. It's called Terre de Ange, which is obviously like land of the angels. They have decided that like, it's super cool down here. So we're going to have a bunch of babies with humans. And those humans, you know, continue to have their own children. And then like a thousand years later, this entire society has been set up. And uh, every, not every, but the society is focused around houses, as a lot of these epic fantasies tend to be. Um, and each house is dedicated to one of the angels who helped establish the society. The main character, Fedra, is born into indentured servitude with a red dot in one of her eyes, which marks her as a servant of Kushiel, who is one of the angels, except his whole deal is like pain. And so she is sold into very early sex work. And then bought out of it by a man who is whose name is Anafiel, who has decided to take her and her like once in a generation marking and make her somebody really, really impressive. Because the marking that that in her eye, that marking in her eye marks her as a servant of this, not God, but like angel of pain, which means that she responds very well to pain if you get my wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> And so this is the kind of sex work she goes into, except Anafiel trains her to also be a spy. So she's got a very sought after, religiously important sexual talent, if you want to call it a talent, gift, proclivity, I don't know. Um, but she's also trained at like eavesdropping and going through your stuff. <laughs> so she gets bought out, basically um, purchased uh, by all of these like wealthy, very powerful people in the society, like way high up in the like the royalty and the aristocracy is the word I'm looking for to be a sex worker for them in their, you know, day-to-day -day evenings or whatever. Um, and while she's there, she gathers information that her, I don't want to call it, like a handler? I don't know, dude who fostered at? Whatever, like guy who bought her when she was young, brings him information that he can then use politically. Uh, and eventually, as the book continues, he, something really bad happens to him and she's kind of left on her own and she has to figure out how to navigate this world because, like, her value doesn't decrease after he's gone. She still has this, this like talent, this gift that, uh, you know, it turns out that super wealthy, self-absorbed, powerful people really like inflicting pain on someone. Who'd have thunk it? So like sure, her, her gifts <laughs> are, are highly sought after. It's a fascinating religious system. It, like I read the, the series, you know, I think there's one book left that I haven't read. Uh, and I almost never finished the series or even continue after the first book. But it's just so interesting. Like, the angels were just there and they, people just accept it and it's totally fine. And she communicates with this God that she has been marked by. And yeah, I just really like it. I think that you will quite enjoy it. So that's Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey. All right. Our next question is from Deborah, who says, I need some gay twilight, essentially. I'm talking embarrassing, women loving women, gay vampires. Pretty please, Deborah. Thank you for this question. <laughs> It was a delight to research. I'm not going to lie. Uh, so I picked Iron and Velvet by Alexis Hall, which is the first book in the Kate Kane series. And this is, no lie, a series that starts off with the premise, what if Bella Swan, who's not, she's not named Bella, obviously, but like, it 100% is like clear that Hall was inspired by this. What if Bella Swan, instead of marrying her vampire, becomes a cynical lesbian investigator of like magical whatnot? Like, what if she realizes that like having a creepy, obsessed 800 year old boyfriend is actually not that great in the long run? And then like, 
dedicates her life to uncovering other magical shenanigans. This is all we ever wanted for you, Bella. It is. It literally, I'm like, if I could, if I had ever thought about it, this is the headcanon that I would have come up with Bella Swan for Bella Swan. But Alexis Hall has written a whole series out of it. And it is so fun. It's so fun. There is some very delightful like women loving women vampire sexy times there's also like this very complicated demonic plot and like people are getting attacked by tentacle monsters and there's werewolves having funerals where ghosts show up and like there's all kinds of stuff that go into the sewers of london and it's just really enjoyable and I just am, I'm now obsessed with this series. I have to read the rest of them. And there are these magnificent little asides when in the book, um, the main character's name is Kate, as you might have guessed from the name of the series. And every now and then her teenage, like her, you know, ex-boyfriend vampire will show up and like say very Edward-y things. Like, I only care about you. I will protect you even from yourself. And she's just like, ugh, get away from me already. Like, I'm a grown up. Leave me alone. This is not what I want. You know, it's just so satisfying and is, you know, many other good things as well. So that is, again, Iron and Velvet, the first in the Kate Kane Paranormal Investigator series by Alexis Hall. I'm so excited about that. Oh, my gosh. You're going to love it, Amanda. You're going to love it. Okay, so I picked Ever After by Nell Stark and Trinity Tam, which is about a woman named Valentine who is a medical student. Uh, like she's in med school. And on her way home to propose to her girlfriend, Alexa, she is attacked by a vampire and bitten and becomes infected. So she, of course, becomes like consumed by the need for blood. And Alexa wants to help her, like wants to be the person who provides this blood to her. Uh, Valentine is also obsessed with finding out, with like locating the vampire who attacked her and exacting revenge, which is like hashtag understandable. But as she becomes more and more powerful, Val's appetite outgrows Alexa's ability to provide for her. So they've got to come up with some kind of new solution because Val doesn't want to, you know, have to go out and inflict violence on anyone. And Alexa doesn't love the idea of Val, like, going out and finding another person who, like, gets real close to Val and, and provides nourishment or sustenance to her um and so the solution that they come up with is that alexa or that alexa comes up with valentine doesn't know um is that alexa is going to uh, take some magical steps but it's a spoiler so i'm not going to tell you what it is that totally 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 changed her life changes her life in order to be able to make this work for them it's it's a switchy pov book which is kind of cool like you get valentine's perspective for the first half and then alexa's perspective for the second half and Valentine's medical student stuff is like super interesting. It introduces a lot of biological theories about vampirism and how it's an infection. And there are also werewolves in this world and how that's like a, I think that's a virus. Vampirism is a parasite and uh, werewolfism, it's not a thing, is is a virus. And so all of that's really, really fascinating. And it's just, it's just, you know, there's werewolves, there's vampires, there's love, there's angst. It's very twilighty. So there you go. So that's Ever After by Nell Stark and Trinity Tam. Except everyone is of age. (laughs) (laughs) It's our show. That's our show. (laughs) Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Sink. Thank you for listening. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where is Jen? I am mostly also on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.